Let's pray. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. This horse has worked and made ready a sermon, and now everything decisive hangs on you. So come and win this battle, I pray. The battle for faith, the battle for love and being loved, the battle to see. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle John told us last week from chapter 11 that the reason Jesus when he heard that Lazarus was sick, did not go immediately to heal him, was that he loved him. He loved Mary and he loved Martha, and therefore he stayed where he was and let him die. And and John said, that's love. That's what love looks like here. So let's look at that just to make sure that's clear in your mind. Chapter 11, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha. And her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the explanation that Jesus gives for why this is love, that you would not go heal him and not go spare them this grief, is given in verse 4. This illness does not lead to death, though he, he will die. It's not the goal, it's not the point. The point is, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In other words, it is more loving to let a person die and to let his relatives go through grief if it will show more of God to them than not to let them die. And go through grief. That's the argument. Now, this is absolutely fundamental to the way this gospel is written. Indeed, I would argue the way the Bible is written. Let's go back to the beginning. I just want you to feel how close we are to the center of this gospel here. This is John 1, 14 again. The word Eternal Son of God became flesh, man, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Chapter 11 is about, Jesus says, full of grace and truth. And then that's connected with us. This gospel is written to connect that with us, savingly, in verse 16 of chapter 1. And from that fullness, the fullness of glory, overflowing with grace and truth, from that fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So here's the pattern of the gospel of John. I would argue the pattern of the Bible. First, the incarnate revealing of the Son of God in glory. We beheld his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father. That's step one. And then eyes are opened through new birth and we see him. We see glory in Christ. We see the glory of God in Jesus. 
And from that sight, that fullness flows along that beam of gracious sight. And we are filled with grace upon grace. We're saved. And everything else that goes with it forever. That's the way it works. Revelation of glory, new birth, sight, salvation forever, and everything that goes with it. Grace upon grace flowing from that fullness that we've now seen and been changed by. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next, 2 Corinthians three, eighteen. That's the pattern of this book. It's the pattern of the Bible. It's the pattern of my preaching. I have very simple goals. I want you to see Jesus. Really see him. Because everything else follows. I can't make anything happen, but that changes everything. If you see him, the way this gospel, John, means for you to see him, then this chapter will make sense. Yeah, (laughs) right. I'm loved. I'm really loved this way. Love is not, God's love is not his sparing us suffering and death. His love is is mainly his showing us and giving us himself in his glory. God loves us mainly by giving us himself and all that he is for us in Jesus. Jesus loves us mainly by giving us himself and all that God is for us in him. That's mainly the way he loves us. He loves us other ways, but mainly Everything is moving towards that. You are loved by Jesus when Jesus gives you Jesus and all that God is for you in Jesus. So, please, Bethlehem, do not measure the love of God for you by how much health, wealth, and comfort he brings into your life. If that were the measure of God's love, he hated the Apostle Paul. Measure God's love for you by how much of himself he shows you. Measure the love of God for you by how much of himself he gives you to know and enjoy through it all. And then to everlasting glory in due time. You've tasted it, haven't you? You know what I mean. Before we go and watch Jesus walk now to Bethany and then work this out with Mary and Martha and the grave, let's just confirm this because this is huge. I hope you can feel how huge this is. This is huge. So I want you to get this really deep down so you feel loved in the way God means for you to feel loved. So let me confirm it with two other passages in John. Surely someone will say to me, rightly, well, when I think about the love of God for me, I think about John 3.16. 
<laughs> I'll think about 11.5. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And to that I say, yes, 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 me too. All my life long, me too. Now let me ask you this. What's eternal life? What's this gift that cost him his son's life? Let Jesus define it. You know where he defines it in this gospel? Crystal clear definition. Chapter 17, verse 3. Here's what he says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. Period. That's eternal life. To, to know him. To know him forever. To know him with increasing knowledge and increasing admiration and increasing wonder and increasing joy. That's eternal life. If you say it's eternal golf, I'm always picking on golf. Sorry. Sorry, David. Whatever. No. It's eternal him. More and more and more. Like a great alpine range and you crawl up over the first range after 10,000 years and there's another one to climb. And you crawl up over that range of glory after 10,000 years and there's another one to climb and you're never, never bored. It's all him. Eternal life is God revealed in his glory, satisfying this cavernous longing that's in your heart that you're trying to fill up with television (laughs) or internet or whatever. It's God. You are amazing creatures. Made the only ones on the planet made to do this. Know him. That's the first confirmation. Confirmation number two, chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. I love that phrase. I will love them and manifest myself to them. That's what love is. I just want you to feel loved by Jesus when he does that for you. You have to have a different view of love than the world. I admit that, but we are born again. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're new creatures. We don't think like the world. To be loved for the Christian is to get more of him. Go ahead, Jesus, manifest yourself to me and I will feel loved. Oh, how many of us can testify to this reality with thankfulness and joy in the days of suffering, in the days of loss, in the days of darkness, when it seemed that everything around our soul gave way, he showed up. That was what it meant to be loved. Not that the suffering went away quick. Not that the loss ever went away. Christ came. 
Christ revealed himself to me. 28 years old, standing in the bookstore, ready to do my fun- the funeral of my mom on Christmas, day after Christmas, 1974. Jesus showed up. I wouldn't trade that moment for her life. She understands that. I didn't get her back. I can cry about my mom's death any 30 seconds you give me. All I have to do is remember a few things, and there it comes. Good night. Nobody meant more to me in those days when I was growing up than my mom. And God took her when I was 28 in a bus wreck. And and Jesus showed up and manifested things about himself I have never outgrown. We know, you've tasted it, you've tasted it. You know what I'm talking about. And I hope those of you who haven't, God will use this service to awaken the taste. Because he loved Lazarus and Mary and Martha, he stayed two days longer where he was so that the glory of God would be more plain to us in the 21st century. And he was loving us as he did that. That's why the book is written. That's why I'm preaching this. By God's design and your presence, you should feel powerfully loved by God right now. And so I hope you're listening and hoping and praying, God, reveal yourself in this sermon. Let's go with him to Bethany. Here we are, verse 7. Jesus says, let's go. The disciples remind him in verse 8, wait a minute, just a few days ago, they were trying to kill you down there in Judea with stoning. Are you sure you want to go? And some of you have asked me in the last week, What about verses 9 and 10? You didn't say anything last week. (laughs) It was in the text and you didn't say anything. That's a, a weird answer Jesus gave. It is. So let's talk about it. Verse 10, verse 9. He answers their objection to going to the dangerous place. He says, are there not 12 hours in the day? Now, you know, they didn't have any clocks back then, and there weren't any minutes. The word minute didn't even exist, never in the Bible. They didn't know what a minute was. An hour was 12 segments of sunrise to sundown. It changed all through the year from 10 hours to 14 hours. That's all an hour was. You put up a sundial, you divide it into 12 pieces, and I'll meet you on the seventh hour down by the river. That's the way you lived your life. You didn't have any clocks. This is a complete day. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. That's the sun. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. Now, what in the world is that in response to their statement? Don't go up there. They're going to kill you. They say, if you go to Judea, you're going to run into a mob and they're going to stone you. And Jesus says, no, they won't. There are 12 hours in the day, and I'm going to walk in the light of that day, and so I won't be in the dark, and I won't stumble any mob. I will arrive at my appointment with the cross exactly when I intend to at the end of the day. He said this once before, so I'm thinking this way. 
Chapter 9, verse 4, when the blind man was being dealt with, Jesus said, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. This day is going to be over, but it's not going to be over before 12 hours. Full day. And I'm walking in it to the end of the day. Nobody's touching me. So the day that Jesus has in mind, I think, is the period of time in which God's providence and favor is surrounding him with the light of extraordinary protection and power until he reaches his appointed task and all protection will be removed. And it will be night. And all hell will break loose because the day's over and he will happily stumble for us and he knows exactly where the stumbling stone is Thomas is not so sure about this answer verse 16 well let us go that we may die with him stone or, or maybe Thomas knew exactly what he meant. I don't know. At any rate, Thomas is ready to go die, so they go. Now, what happens now outside Bethany? He doesn't doesn't ever get into Bethany. He's met outside. Maybe he doesn't want to go into Bethany. There's too much going on in there, and he's, he's calculating his behavior very carefully, where he can go, where he can't, because the day he's not going to get stoned. So outside Bethany, he deals with three different people. And each of those people question his love. It's my interpretation. You've got to test me now on this. They question his motives for not coming. That's the way this is built now. And he responds to each three differently. We're watching his glory. His glory three-way. Bing, bing, bing. You've got three. You didn't come. You didn't come. You didn't come. Three revelations of what happens because he didn't come. His glory is being revealed while his motives are being questioned. And each time, this thinly veiled questioning of his love, this suspicion, this doubt, even weeping causes uh, him to be shaken. Jesus is shaken by this and weeps let's look at these it's uh, Martha then it's Mary then it's the mourners in the crowd first Martha verse 2 I'm sorry verse uh, what 21 so when Martha heard 20, 20 and 21 when Martha heard that Jesus was coming She went out, she went and and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Everybody knows. Second, Mary, verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, My brother would not have died. 
Third, verse 36 and 37, Jesus has just wept, and so the Jews say, see how he loved him. Somebody got it right. They didn't know they got it right. But some said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So Jesus has chosen to love Lazarus and his sisters by not coming. And his not coming is used as the ground of their suspicion for his love. That's quite understandable if you're not thinking with Jesus. How does he respond to these three suspicious doubts? One, with profound truth about himself to Martha. Two, with strong emotion to Mary and the mourners. And then third, with powerful action at the tomb. Now, remember, the goal in coming late was to reveal the glory of God. That's the goal, according to verse 4. And that's what we're going to see. So tune in now. How did the glory of Jesus get revealed as he responded to these three questionings? Why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? Why weren't you here? Number one, the response of profound truth to Martha. She says, verse 21, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. So she questions. She hasn't given up on him at all. Verse 22, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus answers, verse 23, your brother will rise again. She says to him, verse 24, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus says, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? So here, Jesus reveals his glory in words, powerful words, words that if you said, we'd we'd lock you up, words that he says, profound words he speaks into Martha's life and ours. He says, Martha, you believe that at the end of this age, there is appointed a day When God, through the coming of Messiah, will raise all his people magnificently, millions of them, from the grave and clothe them with new bodies. You believe that? Yes, I do. It's here. You thought it would come with Messiah? It did. I'm here. What you are about to witness, Martha, is that the trailer of that. 
I want you to be totally sucked into this so that you'll be ready for that. This is that showing up. I do mean one day to wrap up history, to raise all my people from the dead, and I have come early because I want people saved. You saved. So I'm showing you by my miracles and by this one in particular that the end of the age has arrived. I am the resurrection. I came early. I'm doing it right here on him because I love you. And I want you to see a foretaste of that glory. You get this, Martha? This is what I want you to see. Hear me. Hear me and see in these words who I am and what this is about. I say the same to you. It's going to happen to you. You're his. You're coming out. It's awesome to think about. And he says, let me be specific, Martha. I'm exactly what Lazarus needs, and I'm exactly what you need. He's dead. So he said, whoever lives, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall I'm exactly what Lazarus needs at this moment. And all your dead loved ones, I'm exactly what you need. And I'm what you need too, Martha. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. There won't be a millisecond when you're out of saving fellowship with me, Martha. Not a millisecond. You will never taste death. He said in chapter 5. That's amazing. Looks like death. (laughs) Looked like death last Sunday. Wasn't. Victor never knew it. Life without interruption. That's why it's called eternal life. I will rescue Lazarus, body and soul, from the grave. And when, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I happen to do it in a few minutes, but doesn't matter. When, doesn't matter. And Martha, do you know what this self-revelation of myself as the resurrection and the life means. Do you know what this means, Martha? It means I love you. Get it, Martha? Get it? I wanted to show you something. I want you to feel how much I'm, I want you to know something that's infinitely more glorious than the life of your brother on this planet. I love you, Martha. Number two, Mary and the response of strong emotion. 
Verse 32, she says, Lord, I can't do it right because she's crying. Lord, you've been here. My brother wouldn't have died. She's weeping. Verse 33, Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping. So now the questioning, where were you? It's not just words anymore. It is sobs. Where were you? Where were you? Can you hear it? Can you hear it? Where were you? Most preachers that I have ever heard on this text seem to me to read into the text whatever emotions they think are appropriate at funerals and in grief situations. Now, who am I? I'm not sure what Jesus' emotions were. I'm going to tell you what I think they were, and you judge, but I'm not going to be dogmatic here because commentators are all over the map on these emotions here, and I've got reasons for thinking what I think, and I'm going to tell you what they are, but just know that I've heard a lot of different takes on this text, and you, you need to know I'm, this is one of them. I'm not sure... Besides Jesus weeping, he weeps in verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He, he wept. Why? What, what was he weeping about? It's not obvious because there are two other emotions, two big words that are used in verse 33 to describe his response to Mary and to the mourners. It says this near the end of verse 33. He was deeply moved. Now, that is an effort at a translation. Pretty vague. Deeply moved in his spirit. And the second word is, he was greatly troubled. Let me say a word about those two words. Um, This word for deeply moved, uh, it's going to be used again in verse 38. Um, is never in the New Testament word for compassion or tenderness. It's a, it's a, it's a emotion, it's a rebuking emotion. It's a warning emotion. Used three other times outside the gospel where warnings and stern rebukes were given. And the other word, shaken or troubled, is the word used back in uh, chapter 5 or 7 for the waters around Bethesda. They, weren't, they, they were stirred up. So you get this, this, this strong disturbance in Jesus' soul like a, a rebuking and like a warning. On the one hand, you got this troubled. What is, what is going on here? What, what is he responding? What, what's he reacting to? I don't think it's tender. I don't think it's empathy. I'm sure he felt tender emotions and felt empathy, but that's not what this is. This disturbance deep down when Mary said, 
Lord, if you'd been here, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then he wept. He wept. And what are we to make of that? I'm sure it wasn't simple. I'm sure. I mean, have you ever cried about weird things? Good night. There's a lot of reasons to cry in this world. Some are really happy. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are right in the middle. Some of them are 100, I mean, 10 years old. Some of them out of the blue. Just tears come from lots of places. Don't assume you know what this is. And don't suspect we do know very well what this is. But he wept. Now, and he, he, here, here's what he wept in response to. Could not even he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Verse 37. But that, that's part of what he got upset about because in verse 38 that follows, you have this big strong word again. They were suspicious. Couldn't he have done that? Why didn't he do that? It must be that he, oh, he didn't care enough or, Jesus. Now, when he gets here to verse 38, and this emotion is is rising again, I have heard pastors preach like this. They get that verb, and they say, there rose up like a horse snorting Jesus' anger at death. He planned this death. And not only did he plan this death, but verse 37 really does start with therefore. Then, therefore, literally, Deeply disturbed again with rebuke and warning, he came to the tomb. And what is the therefore connecting with? It's connecting with, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Jesus doesn't like that. He didn't like it when Martha said it. He didn't like it when Mary said it. And he doesn't like it when the crowds say it. And he is disturbed deeply by it. That's my interpretation of what's going on here. I don't think he's snorting at death. I think he's snorting at the questioning of his motives. So he says, let's go. Where is he? Now, whether I'm right or not about that, and I told you I didn't want to be too dogmatic about it, whether I'm right or not, these emotions are a revelation of the glory of God in Jesus. The God-man had deep, strong emotions that always accorded perfectly with the situation, however you explain it. We don't worship a stone My Jesus, whom I worship, 
had powerful, deep emotions. And if this one is anger, (laughs) to be angry at unbelief and suspicion and the questioning of his motives is love. Because those are the very things that keep you from seeing him in the moments of pain. What should he feel about them? I'm happy you're doubting. I'm happy you're suspicious of my motives. I'm happy you're questioning me. No, I wish you weren't doing that because they're keeping you from seeing what I'm about. This is love. I assume everything Jesus did had love in it for his people. Finally, number three, we're now at the powerful action. We've seen his response to Martha with profound truth. We've seen his response to Mary and the mourners with strong emotion. And now we're going to see his powerful action Verse 39, take away the stone. Martha, bless her heart, resists one more time. She's not sure he can do it. It's going to smell, Jesus. It's been four days. This is going to be awful. Finally, In response to that, Jesus makes the connection with verse 4 explicit. Here's what verse 4 had said. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's what this chapter is about, he says in verse 4. And now in verse 40, can remember the two, 4 and 40, 4 and 40. He says to Martha, Did I not tell you, back when I was saying I was the resurrection and the life, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So I'm finishing. I'm just wrapping it up here. I'm doing what I said I was going to do. I've been revealing my glory in words. I've been revealing my glory in my my emotions. And now I'm going to reveal my glory in powerful action. Watch this, Martha. So he prays in verses 41 and 42. To the Father, so that everyone would know out loud, I'm linking with the Father here. We are one in this action. And in verse 43, he says, it says, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Verse 44, the man who had died came out. Dead man obeyed the word of God. That's how you got saved, you know. John. Live! And the dead John heard for the first time and lived. That's the way you got saved. This is a picture of spiritual and physical resurrection. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. And I'm finished. Maybe one more paragraph. This is our Lord Jesus. 
This is our Jesus. He raised Lazarus because he is the resurrection. He is the resurrection. We're watching the end of the age. (laughs) When you and I in Jesus are coming out. We're watching it. That's glory. He's coming in great glory at the end of the age. He is the arrival in history of God's final glorious renovation of all things, including our bodies. And that has shown up now. That's what this is, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, Bethlehem. That's what this is. Be stunned, be be amazed, be shocked. The end of the age has arrived. The glory of God is here in Jesus. This is our God. This is worth dying for, Lazarus, twice. This event, this chapter 11, and this sermon is intended to be, by them and me, a window onto your resurrection and Jesus' power and glory in doing it. Therefore, this event, the death, the grief, the strong words, the strong emotions, the powerful action, and my saying it is God's love for you. Now. I'm pleading, do you? Do you see it? He says, and I close, this is Jesus talking to you. Come to me. Come to me. This is who I am. I have so much more of me to show you. So much more for all your life and then forever. And you will never grow weary. You will never be bored. You will be surpassingly satisfied in your craving soul with me. And I'm inviting you, come to me and I will manifest myself to you. That is, I will love you. Father, I thank you for Christ who loved us and gave himself for us and rose from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and that very soon, who knows, very soon the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And all the church of God from all the ages will cry out, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, 
who fulfilled the law and died in our place and rose again. Yes. Thank you for loving us like this, Father. And thank you, Jesus, for loving us the way you loved Lazarus. We're going to die. And we're going to be loving those who've died. Never, never let us forget what it is to be loved like this. Pray in Jesus, your name. Amen.